Hey. Uh, happy Father's Day. Here's the title of my talk, What is the Father Wound? <laughs> so I'm going to say a lot of warm and fuzzy things. And um, okay, here's a quote from, from D.H. Lawrence, just to start things off. Men have been depressed now for many years. He says, men have been depressed now for many years. Depressed in their male and resplendent selves, he says. Depressed into de de dejection and almost abjection. And he asks, is that not evil? Yeah, that's his, um, I don't know, uh, a place to start, I guess. Is he right? And I know there's uh, a lot of criticism around men in power, that I'm in favor of being in that conversation. And critiques are important, and words like patriarchy, which I'm going to talk about in a, in a bit. I know another white male talking about patriarchy. Well, <laughs> here we go. But I want to talk about some of these things, and, but, I'm also, uh, but I'm more interested in the deeper layers here. Is he right here? Um, Men have been depressed now for many years and have felt dejected. That's something that most people are not talking about. And suicide rates among men are much higher. I mentioned that last week with, with my brother who's a vet who's been to Iraq twice. And I said he has lost more friends to suicide than friends when he was serving. So I think 16... Uh, Vets a day kill themselves, most of them are men. So we should be talking about wounds is what I want to say this morning. And I want to talk about the father wound. And what do I mean? Okay, I mean several things without, uh, I mean several things at once. I mean the wounds that men carry. I mean that generally. I mean the wounds that our own fathers carried. So like it or not, whether you knew your dad or you didn't know your dad, you have a father, and that father was a carrier of certain kinds of wounds. So I mean that. And I also mean the way in which we might feel wounded by our own fathers or lack of fathers. Have I made sense? I mean all those things at the same time. And the way I'm going to sort of wander into this terrain is I'm going to use a couple myths, big surprise. <laughs> Because myths have been around since before organized religion. The two I'm going to say today or mention today briefly are 5,000 or 10,000 years old is probably more like it. So before Christianity. And you'll see little hints in there that, okay, how we deal with wounds and what is it like to be a father, and of course there are an equal number of, of myths about the feminine or the mother, has been a very important part of culture. It's like, how do we grow up? How do we deal with just the blows of being a human being? The things that wound us and the things that create certain wounds in, in the culture. And I, I, w I would like to say the father wound is one of those. It's, it's one of that, uh, it's part of that terrain. And, um, and I, how did I get into this? Like, I don't know how I got into talking about masculinity, what I like to call the sacred masculine. 
If you would have asked me 10 years ago, are you like into, quote, men's work, I'd be like, no way. Do you want to go on a men's retreat? No way. That's definitely not something I want to do. But I kind of, I stumbled my way into this conversation in kind of a roundabout way, first by discovering the book um, Iron John by Robert Bly, who was already a poet that I liked, and I read this book, and I was like, oh, okay, well, first of all, I don't know what I'm talking about, and second of all, this is a pretty important conversation, and um, yeah, and ever since then, I've been sort of going down this road just on my own, and, and also now, of, uh, occasionally, I, I lead retreats and programs, and some of them are just happen to be men only. So that doesn't make me an expert. I'm saying it's an important conversation. What do we do with wounds? What do we do with our own wounds around our own fathers? And what do we do about the wounded nature of, 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 our, of the father world in general? So Robert Bly has a name of a chapter, which I think is in, in this book, Iron John. It's called um, Hunger for the King in the Time of No Father. Like, that's the world we live in. We're hungry for the king in a time of no father. I mean, that, that in and of itself is a poem in its own right. And I wonder how true it is. We're hungry. So he's saying we're hungry for something. We're hungry for, he says, the king, which is an archetypal image, which I'll mention more about in a second. But we're hungry for a king, but we have no fathers. Our fathers aren't teaching us the ways of the king. You could also say queen, too. We can blur the lines here. But right now, I'm, I mean, it's Father's Day, so this is what I'm interested in. Um, yeah, hungry for the king in a time of no father. And, and so king is an archetype. And what's an archetype? An archetype is a pattern. It's a constellated energy pattern that is, is imagined in a certain image. It's kind of a, a, a complex way of saying it's just a pattern that keeps showing up. How old is the king? 900,000 years old. How old is the queen? You know, uh, 1.5 million years old. I don't know. These aren't, I'm not sci being scientific here. But the idea of the rule and the generative rule of the king and the queen is deeply embedded in the human psyche. We long for good kingship and good queenship. We just don't call it that. But when we don't have it, we scream and rail and and give the middle finger. It's like that line in the Bible. Our fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. You know that line? Well, now you do. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's te teeth are set on edge. It's like when there's not generativity in the most positive archetypal sense, um, that kind of rulership, the image being king and queen, then the young people are like, you know, have a middle finger up. Or they feel dejected, despondent, rejected, and depressed, or sometimes both. Have I made sense? Yeah, I was just imagining if that was on a Father's Day card, <laughs> whatever I just said there. <laughs> so, I think Robert Bly is right. We're hungry. We're hungry for something, and um, right now, we have deep-seated mistrust. Who of you are going around just saying, you know, the one thing I trust is males in power. It's just like, <laughs> just, that's where I just really find my ground, you know? No one says that on, on really either side, you know? It's just of the political spectrum. It's like, no, we can generally agree that there are things to be mistrusted, but I'm telling you, that kind of 
that kind of, um, that's like a worm that goes down into the heart, you know, and starts to wreak havoc. It creates a lot of bitterness and resentment and anger and rage and violence. And there's good reason not to trust, um, you know, the power structures and abuses and things like this. But one of the things that Robert Blythe says, which is kind of fascinating, he says that our age is one where we have too little father, not too much. Too little father energy and too little generative father energy, not too much. We have too much of other kinds of things, and so that creates like a thirsty world. We're hungry, we're thirsty, we're starving, in other words. And I'll just say, it's hard to be a dad. It's, it's like one of the best things. Of, I mean, I happen to be a dad, and it's like, you know, um, the best thing that ever happened to me. You can put that on a Hallmark card. It's also the most difficult, you know. And, and you don't get a lot of help, believe it or not. And, um, and you don't get helped out by the culture very much. And, and the village world has been destroyed. Say, see, and, and I, I mean village um, literally and also, you can think symbolically, like in a village, what kind of characters are present? Well, you have like the shamans, you have the witches, you have um, the priestly class, you have, well, fathers and mothers. Um, uh, wh- wh- what else do you have in a village? You, you have the, the healer, um, you have the warrior, um, you have the king, you have the queen. You, and all of a sudden, all that's gone and you're expected to be all things. You have no uncle, for that matter. You have no one to come alongside. Do you know, actually, in, the, in, in ancient initiation rites for men, it's not the father that initiated the son. They can't do it. You can't, you can't initiate your son because part of the conflict is a necessary dimension of growing up. You have to, at a certain point, say... I reject you. It's not like Jesus said, hey, I'm going to go be the Messiah. Is that all right, Joseph? You know, it doesn't, doesn't work. You know, it's like he has to say, I'm leaving Nazareth, you know, or whatever, some, some version of that. But it's, it's usually someone that comes alongside the young person, the uncle or, or the you know, village shaman or the elder or something. It says, okay, let's go, let's go learn the, the, the secrets of, of the masculine, sacred masculine realm. Anyway, I'm not sure what my point was. Oh, I know what it was. That the village is gone. And so here you're just like a, a, a nuclear family is the thing that's praised. And you live in a little cul-de-sac. I mean, I'm exaggerating. Not everybody does this. But it's like a symbolic cul-de-sac in a tiny yard that is your tiny empire where you're all alone expecting to do it all. And it doesn't work. Meanwhile, part of doing it all is, for many people, getting in a car and going somewhere else. So it's, I'm not letting anyone off the hook here. I'm not saying let, let your dads off the hook. Um, but I'm saying our culture is disordered. Okay, what else do I want to say? Um, oh, let's read, let's read from some Bly here. You should probably know some things, though, before I read this quote, because I know it's very fun to, to make fun of and put down the patriarchy. And I'm going to say very valid critiques, but what do you mean? All right, I'll just give you a definition of the word. Patriarchy means rule of the father. Okay, You know what matriarchy means? Rule of the mother. And 
both are the yin and the yang of, of, of a dimension of being human. The matriarchal realm and the patriarchal realm. They're supposed to dance. And they dance in the psyche. The psyche is both masculine and feminine, and we could go down that whole path, but we'll just leave that as just hanging out there for a second. But rule of the father. And, you know, you say, well, father shouldn't be ruling. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I have an 18-year-old son, and what we, what we were fighting about the other day. Well, when you're in my house, these are the rules, you know? And they can be generative, or they cannot be generative. They can cause shame and guilt and be a blow to the psyche, or they can be more generative, and, and it depends, and it depends on the context, and it's sometimes both. So I'm just messing with patriarchy automatically equals bad. I'm just saying, it's, it, technically, it means the rule of the father, all right? And now, Robert Bly, really, it, one thing I didn't put in here, you can put this in your, your uh, I don't know what you would call it, your pipe and smoke it. Um, he says... Uh, all, patriarch, all patriarchy is matriarchal on the inside. <laughs> I, re I read that and I laughed and I thought, I don't even know what he means, but it was something interesting. All right, so this is, here's the paragraph I want to read. Genuine patriarchy brings down the sun through the sacred king. So the, or the archetypal backdrop of rule of the father is the king. It's the king. And at its best, it's, it's sacred in nature. It's sacred and generative in nature. It, it has in mind the next seven generations, not just, you know, what I want. Genuine patriarchy brings down the sun through the sacred king into every man and every woman in the culture. And genuine matriarchy brings down the moon through the sacred queen to every woman and man in the culture. Obviously, he's speaking highly mythically and poetically here. But it's, it's just worth, I don't know, hanging out with these images. Think about the noonday sun, like bringing clarity and heat and, and where things grow. And, and that's, that's, that, that's the archetypal image of the king, of the sacred king. And what is the moon? The moon is way more mysterious. Like there'd be no life on earth without the sun. Are you aware of this? There also would be absolutely no life on earth without the moon. That is a scientific fact. Evolution, as we know it, maybe there'd be some form of life, but evolution as we currently find it with us thinking thoughts and I'm standing up here, blah, 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 talking on and on, that's the moon, all right? And so the sun and the moon, what's blazing and brings clarity and what's hidden and disappears and there's a certain glow at night and, you know, this is the realm of the sacred queen and which is better, you know? You can't only live by the light of the moon, and you can't only live by the light of the sun. It just doesn't work. That's why all these ancient religions had both, always both. Even if one was more patriarchal, it always leaks out sideways. Like, oh, it's all about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we're like, oh, wait, we got this whole Mary thing, and we can't control it. And all right, it just comes up anyway. All right. That was just one sentence. Where was I? The death of the sacred king and queen means that we now live in a system of industrial domination. That's actually what most people mean when they critique patriarchy, in my opinion. Industrial domination. Which is not patriarchy, he says. Not in the deeper possibility of that word. The system we live in 
gives no honor to the male mode of feeling, nor to the female mode of feeling. And I'll say something more about feeling in a moment. It doesn't take it into consideration. Industrial domination does not take feeling into consideration, either male or female. The system of industrial uh, denomination, it is a denomination, Domination determines how things go with us in the world of resources, values, and allegiances. Now think about this. What are our values? How do we use resources? What do we align ourselves with? Oh, I know. We'll check in with the world of industrial domination, and it will define these things. It will define what's important, who we line up with, how to use things, what things to use, what things are legitimate to use, only by the industrial mode. What animals live and what animals die and how children are treated. And the mo- oh, that's, that article, the, the shouldn't be in there. And in most of industrial domination, there is neither king or queen. They've been run out of town. The sacred rule of masculine and feminine, the sacred rule of king and queen, They're run out of town. The feeling mode of being run out of town, and the only lens is how do we use it? How do we dominate? Uh, What did you say in your uh, uh, meditation? Domination, uh, dominion and exploitation. Those are the words of the industrial mode of being. Now, I'm not anti-industry, and you'll see in a minute that this is not a modern problem. I'm going to read a myth that's 10,000 years old that is about the industrial revolution. All right, so... Wrestling with how to use things requires certain faculties, but at what cost? That becomes the question, at what cost? The cost is in the realm of feeling, I'm going to suggest. Let me see what else I can read. Um, Okay, I want to say something about the father for a second. Now, if you're not familiar with this as an idea, I challenge you to to just pay attention for the next couple weeks and ask yourself, um, the images in our culture of fatherhood, what are they like? Right, what are they like? Like if you watch a sitcom, what character is the father? How does he, how does he show up? I might tell you something about like the kind of conversation that's at work here. A clown. There we already, we already have it. It's, it's a, it's a, a, and you would say, well, with good reason. You know, like, good, they deserve it, you know. Um, they're buffoons. But it's like, it's like a trope. And, and um, you see why D.H. Lawrence says men have been depressed now for many years. They, they feel dejected. Right? So now I'll read, again, some more Robert Bly. In our time, when the father shows up, it is as an object of ridicule as on the TV. And that's what's fun. It's fun to laugh at the buffoon, clown, dad. Look at commercials. It's always like, dad doesn't know, you know? And okay, sometimes we don't know what the hell's going on. I agree. But <laughs> think about it in terms of sacred, kingly energy, definitely not present. That's not what sells, okay? Okay, in our time, when the father shows up, it's as an object of ridicule, as he does on TV, or in a fit field of suspicion, as he does in Star Wars. That's the, Darth Vader means dark father, okay? 
something to be suspicious of. Or as in a bad-tempered fool when he comes home from the office with no teaching. Or a weak puddle of indecision. I think most men, if I'm, again, these are, it's not like I'm a statistician, but I'm going to, most men feel weak, not powerful, all right? In a weak puddle of indecision because he has no kingly radiance. And he says, if all this is happening, the son, S-O-N, has a problem, and the daughter has a problem. The culture has a problem. And that's our only view of fatherhood. How, if you're a young man, how do you imagine your own life as a man? How do you imagine it? And these are the images that we have. Okay, time for two myths. Should have plenty of time. All right, so I want to tell you two myths. One has to do with, with the masculine wound, more generally, the wound of the father, and it's gonna, I'm going to go PG, or PG-13 here in a second. Um, and the other has to do with the relationship between, um, well, very practically, father and daughter, but um, more like the father world and the world of the feminine. Okay, so it's two stories. I brought a book, so show and tell. Um, and I do recommend this book. It's called uh, The Fisher King and the Handless Maiden. It's a reference to those two myths by Robert Johnson. He's a, he's a Jungian, and it's a very slender book. It's a good read. Um, so I'm just, you know, credit where credit is due. I'm not only going to tell you the very beginning of these two myths, but I'm using a little bit of, of some Jungian insights here. Okay. Myth number one has several names. It's called the Fisher King. Sometimes it's called the Parsifal myth. Sometimes it's called the quest for the Holy Grail. All right? So all of those are really versions of the same thing. And, and I want to say something about myths in general. A myth is, is a map. It's not the same as the terrain. Okay? It's a map. And what does a map do? It basically says you're in this general vicinity, and here's a picture of what the vicinity is like. It's not the same thing as like wandering around. If you've ever been really lost in the woods as I've been, a map is not all that helpful. <laughs> Especially if you don't know where you are on the map, okay? And myths are like that. It's like, it's not one-to-one. -one. It's like, I'm going to say some things about the masculine wound, and you're not going to conclude all men are wounded exactly like this. That's unfair. Or you're going to say, this explains my dad, and you're whatever. It's just like saying the territory is a little like this. So we have to be careful when, careful is the wrong word, but we have to be expansive when we read a myth and just say, hey, it might illuminate the terrain somewhat. So that's what I hope to do, is just, just illuminate, illuminate the, <laughs> the terrain. I just thought of something Michael Mead says about myths. He says, a myth is a, is a series of lies that tells the truth, okay? So it's kind of like that. All right, so the first myth is the Fisher King, and it's very, very old. It's older than Christianity. And here's how it starts. Um, one day, a, a prince or a knight, depending on the version, and by the way, all myths have like multiple versions. It's like, that's just the way it is. They kind of like, you know, like how your, your friend, not you, just changes the story slightly each time, okay? It's, it's like that, all right? 
wait a minute, that's not what happened. Okay, so anyway, one version, uh, Prince is out one day, and um, he's wandering in the forest, and, and he's hungry. Because all young people are hungry. They're hungry for depth and meaning and truth and vitality and wisdom and, um, and experience. They're hungry. So he's out wandering, and, and, he, and he bumps into kind of an abandoned encampment where some knights were or something. And maybe they're off to battle, he doesn't know. But right in the center, roasting over the fire is a salmon. Right? And I could go into the whole salmon is a big deal in mythology. Whatever, I'll just skip that part. And so he's hungry and he goes up and, and, and he knows like on one level that he shouldn't be eating from the salmon because it's a sacred animal for one thing and it's not his for another thing, but he can't help it. It's like... When the hunger for meaning is really there, you're going to take pretty big risks as a young person. And so he puts his hand in, into the salmon just to take a little bit of flesh, and it burns his hand, and he puts his finger in his mouth. He puts his thumb in his mouth, like, is that other one? Tom, thumb? Yeah, all, all related to this, by the way. And, and, and he accidentally tastes the salmon, and because the salmon is, is sacred, there are going to be consequences to this. You know, like the Bible says, you can't see the face of God or you'll die. You know, thanks. Um, but that kind of thing, there's like something sacred here and we can't just rush in. And anyway, puts his hand in his mouth to alleviate the pain and he's tasted the sacred. And you can't go back once you taste the sacred, but now there are consequences. And in one version of the story, a knight from the edge of the forest releases an arrow, and it runs straight into his groin, okay? And he's wounded in the thigh. That's the polite way of saying the groin, all right? He's wounded in his most vulnerable place. That's the masculine wound. You're wounded where you're most vulnerable. And actually, if I just extrapolate out a little bit, all wounds are related to vulnerabilities. We wouldn't be wounded... We wouldn't feel wounded if we weren't vulnerable in that particular dimension. And in fact, you could say, I'll take it one step further, which is the places where you find your own wounds, especially the deeper ones, the core wounds, will reveal your wild, unique sensitivities. That's another way of saying the same thing. You are uniquely sensitive in certain uh, realms, and that's where you're going to get wounded. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of that in a second. But I just want you to feel the power of the story. I'm pursuing meaning. I'm pursuing a larger life. I want to become an adult or an elder. And guess what? The arrow flies and wounds me in my most vulnerable place as a young man, in this case, in the story. And what does the thigh represent? The thigh represents generativity, creativity, Eros, vitality, life, vibrancy, that's what it represents, and that's where the wound is, all right? And if you go back to D.H. Lawrence and say men have been depressed now for many years, some of it comes from this dimension. Where men are most creative, psychically, psychologically, spiritually, most generative, they've been shot through, and they don't know what to do with it. And the rest of the myth is about then the fisher king. This boy grows up and becomes the fisher king, and all day long he 
sits in the castle and complains about his wounds. Okay? He complains about his wounds. And you know what wounded people act like from time to time? Tyrants. You know what wounded people act like from time to time? Weaklings. Those two extremes. This is part of the wounded masculine. It's part of the wounded father. Okay? Have I made some sense so far? <laughs> Myths are fun. Okay, so I don't want to even tell you the long process of, of, of potential healing that takes place, but this story is saying our own fathers are wounded where they're most potent. And unless they experience some healing, they're going to become tyrants or weaklings. That's a very short interpretive version of that. And you look around at our world, at the state of the masculine, of the father, and you see a lot of tyrants. Do you agree? And you see a lot of weaklings. Okay? You could say, what do you mean by that? Well, just keep it general for the time being. You don't see generativity, creativity, eros, vitality, potency, kingly, sacred energy. You don't see it because the wound is festering. And so whatever you want to say about the state of affairs, I think next time, I mean, here's, here would be a challenge. I don't know what it's like for you, but for me, when I... <laughs> When I am paying attention to politics, which I try not to, but I can't help it. Everybody does. Um, uh, I don't see a lot of sacred energy is a generative way of putting it. <laughs> I don't see it. But sometimes I remind myself. I like to remind myself. Right in front of me, right here, is there's an open, festering wound that needs attention. Now, that doesn't excuse any behavior, but I think, no, something is, there's a deep wound here. And what are we going to do about that as individuals and as a culture? I mean, those are fair questions. All right, that's as far as I want to go with myth number one. Myth number two. Myth number two. Um, called the handless maiden. And okay, it too has a, a, an interesting beginning. And here's the beginning. So the beginning is the story of, uh, of, the, of a miller. And the miller in the ancient world was the one who did the grain grinding. And it was a very important job because harvesting and, you know, taking care of the fields and all this kind of stuff was very challenging. And eventually a sort of class of people rose up called the millers and they just did the grinding. And the grinding made things much more efficient and it benefited the, the whole culture. So it also happened to make the miller one of the more powerful people in the community because you're essentially controlling the food source and you're controlling the cost of grain and what it costs to grind and so forth and so on. So beginning of the story is about a father, and he's a miller. And uh, one day he's out milling, and this is back when they're, you know, either did it by hand or by, like, you know, some kind of animal. And they, you know, would go around in a circle with the animal and grind the grain. It takes time. You've got to feed the animal and all this kind of stuff. So the devil shows up one day. And the devil says, all right, let's make a deal. I'm going to teach you how to be much more efficient, and make much more money. Now, who of you would deny such a bargain? And, and so the miller's like, all right, if I can work less and make more money, and it not only benefits me but the entire community, why not? Let's do it. And the devil says, okay, great, but it's going to cost you something, of course, because that's how it works. And, 
and he says, all right, what's it going to cost? He's like, it's going to cost you whatever's behind your house. And the miller thinks to himself, all right, well, what's behind my house is like kind of an old apple tree, and it doesn't really like produce apples all that well anyway. So you know what? I can live without this tree. Sorry. Done deal. So the devil says, great. They, he starts teaching him how to do it. And what the devil ends up showing him is how to make a water wheel. So the water wheel goes automatically in the river and grinds the grain, and then he can chill and, you know, watch Netflix and all this kind of stuff. Well, the grain is being ground, and one day the devil comes back and says, okay, time to, time to settle up since I taught you all this. And he's like, all right, let's go behind the house. I'll show you the tree. Go behind the house, and his daughter's standing there, okay? And he realizes, all right, what's happened here is I've exchanged my daughter, the feminine, for industrial growth. For, um, what, did, what phrase did Bly use? The system of industrial domination. It's going to cost you something. And what it's going to cost you is a relationship with the feminine. So what they end up doing, she cries, she screams, mother doesn't want her to go, father doesn't want her to go, the devil says, all right, I won't take her. I'll just cut off her hands, and that's what he does, and now she has no hands. So, okay, quick time out. These two stories, the masculine wound is in the groin, so you might want to wonder, hmm, wonder what that means, and the feminine wound is in feeling handless, unable to do in the culture, unable to have a full human experience, okay? So... Again, these myths are 10,000 years old, and I think, hmm, might be some truth here. So, all right, that's the exchange. That's the bargain. It's going to cost you something. It's going to be at the expense of the feminine. And, um, and uh, let me add one more dimension, because one of the things that is, um, uh, I guess, would require a whole other talk, so I'll try to do it in just a short paragraph here. One of the things that, that Johnson does in this book is he says that um, both of these myths are related to the feeling function, if you're familiar with uh, Jungian typology or Myers-Briggs, the feeling function. And, um, you have the thinking function and the feeling function on two poles here. And uh, much of the world is run by the thinking function. Would you agree with that? That's the thing that we praise, and we need rational thinking and so forth and so on. I'm not against that. And but it comes at the expense of the feeling function. And you might think, well, what's that? Well, it's two things. It's the capacity to feel, which is part of what these stories are about. But feelings, according to Johnson, is the realm of values. It comes at the expense of values. What is really valuable? And put that into the Miller story. What is really valuable? Cheaper grain and less work or your daughter? Do you feel how those two things are, are really questions of what's, what's of ultimate value? And he says what ends up happening is the masculine world, the world of the father, often chooses the industrial mode of being, but it's going to cost both himself something on the level of the feeling function and also as it relates to the world of the feminine. Have I made sense? Okay. Because this isn't a class on mythology, <laughs> and you're not interested in sitting here for the next four hours, 
I'm going to pause on those two stories. I, do, I just want them to, to stir the water here. And here are some questions that I think are worth asking coming up out of this. All right. Um, here's one really personal one. In what way was my own father wounded? What were the nature of his wounds like? What was he like as a person? How was he wounded by his father? Something like that. How, how has the culture wounded men? That's, that's a pretty important question, I think. How has the culture wounded men? And, and how do we deal with those wounds? How do we, because one of the things that's good news about these myths is it starts to chart a map for how one might experience healing. It doesn't say that they can be avoided. You can't avoid being wounded. Welcome to being human. I wish it was another way, but I don't know of another. It's just part of the human experience. The question is, how do we relate to those particular wounds? Um, I did write down some questions. Here's another question that I think is worth thinking about. Um, well, how was I wounded? by my own parents, really, more broadly, but how was I wounded by, by my own father? And I know that's probably not a brand new question for m most of you. I'm sure it's, it's an old question. But how do I carry my own wounds here? And what is the nature of my own wounds? And just beneath that, what sensitivities are present? What sensitivities are present? I'll give you, a, I'll just make up a quick story about what I mean. Let's say, let's imagine there's a young boy, right? There's a young boy, and, and, his, uh, and he has a cat, a dog. We'll say a dog. He has a dog, and the dog is sick, and he's five. He's five years old. And the dog is not only sick, but it's dying. And he feels this deeply. There's a certain sensitivity present in this five-year-old around this living animal. It's revealing a value system of what is life and what's important and how do I feel about life. And, and he's not just like sort of likes his dog, like all kids might like their dog. There's a certain kind of pain present here in, this, in the dying of his favorite dog. Are you with me so far? And um, he's, he's uniquely sensitive. It's almost as if he can feel the dog's pain and the dog can feel his pain. Do you believe me that this is possible? It is possible. <laughs> and one day his dad comes in and says, it's a stupid dog, let's just shoot it. Okay? And the masculine in this case, or the miller... <laughs> has made a choice about what's valuable and what's important. And guess what happens to that little boy? It hurts. He's wounded in a certain way. And this is the way the psyche works. It says, when you're five, this will never happen again. I'm going to shut this off. This realm of being hurt and being sensitive, like in the thigh, sensitive in a certain way, and if I shield myself from this, this will never happen again. Have I made sense? That's what the masculine wound is like. 
that's what grows up later and looks like the wounds of our own fathers. Never again. I'll give you one of the best quotes I heard from another Jungian I, I, I know. Um, her name is Lisa Marciano. This is what she says of, of patriarchy, if I can find it. Silence is pregnant here with possibilities. Where did I write that? Oh, here it is. Okay, this is what she says patriarchy is. It's the protective layer against male vulnerability. Okay, it's the protective layer against male vulnerability. Go back to that boy. He's five. His own unique, wild sensitivity, his beauty, the way he's shaped in the world, is hurt. It's wounded. It's crushed. And a little protective layer goes like this. This is never again. So the healing path is the lessening of that. It's, it's when, the, when the protective layer starts to become porous again. And and, and we become more fully human, which is the capacity to think and feel. If we want it, there are other functions too, but thinking and feel. We don't just need thinking. It's just a dog anyway. It has no soul. <laughs> we need the feeling function. We need the capacity to make uh, a different kind of judgment. And she says, when the protective layer against male vulnerability is too strong, it leads to rage, domination, and passivity. And that pretty much sums up the worst parts of what people think of as toxic masculinity. Rage, domination, and passivity. Beneath all that is a wound. That's what I got for you.